So Genesis 37, if you have the little outline from this morning, I didn't, I didn't duplicate uh, where I'm going to head tonight, but I, I wanted to just finish up. We actually left off at verse 12, but I wanted to go back and cover one piece of the story. I always hate it uh, when somebody's preaching and they sort of ignore like a, a controversial verse or, you know, I like to read before and after. You should always do that. When your preacher's preaching, just check him out. That's one of the things we do as believers that, you know, we worked with Muslims for years. You can't question that. You know, like in Islam, you can't even ask questions. But as believers, you know, you want to look in the Word, search the Word. So look before, after, you know, whatever the, the, the message is. In, embedded in the story of Joseph in Genesis 38 uh, is a, a weird story. And in your notes from this morning, uh, talking about the whole purpose. Why is this whole story of Joseph, even in the Bible, uh, going from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50? One of, in fact, the big reason is this is a story about God and God's plan and God's sovereignty. Joseph is a player Abraham was a player, Isaac was a player, Jacob was a player, now Joseph is a player, but all of those players are getting us to the cross. That's God's plan, that's God's sovereignty, that's the ultimate goal of all of this. Even though we can learn stuff from Joseph, and we're going to, but it's a story about God and his plan and his sovereignty. That's when, and when you understand that, then you can understand why Genesis 38 is embedded in the story. So we, we kind of leave off. I'll go ahead and, and leave off. Well, yeah, I'm going to leave off in Genesis 37, 12. We'll come back and pick that up. But just jump to Genesis 38, because after Joseph is uh, sold to the Egyptians, this story in Genesis 38... Uh, is like a totally different story, except it's not. Okay, by that I mean, if you read Genesis 38, this is that weird story of Judah and Tamar. And, I mean, that's one of those... I I had a guy in my church in Dallas. You probably didn't know this, Bill. While I was at Southwestern Seminary, uh, after the first year, Merle and I went to this church in Dallas. Have you guys ever flew into Dallas the old Love Field, okay? You land at Love Field, look to the left, you see our church. It's Love Field, Denton Drive, a railroad track in our church. And so we were there for four years, and uh, young, I mean, I think we went there, we were, Merle and I were like 23, and uh, came to Barstow when we were 28. So there you go. But I had a guy in the church named Herbert Arnoy. And I, I never forgot the guy because he was one of those people that shows up in a church family from time to time who's just a little different. And I remember the first time he'd been at church a couple of Sundays and he said, hey, can you come over to my house? And I said, okay. So I went over there and he showed me this Bible. All throughout his Bible, in the margin, he had written, Herbert, go and do likewise. Herbert, go and do likewise. And he had taken like the scripture and anything he kind of liked in it, he just wrote in there, go and do likewise, go and do likewise. And when, you know, 
fortunately, in Genesis 38, he didn't write that. Because Genesis 38 is about Jacob's son, Judah. That name sounds familiar. It should. Judah gets married, and Judah has three children. And uh, you can look in Genesis 38, the first uh, few verses. Uh, The first son's name was Ur. The second one's name was Onan. And uh, Ur, verse 6, married a woman named Tamar. Now, these guys, uh, Ur ends up dying. In fact, if you read the story, it's kind of weird. It's that he was evil, so God took him. Okay. That's a Sunday school class discussion right there. Yeah. Okay, so the, 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 the culture and the rule was, if you die, then your brother takes your wife so that you have offspring. And so Onan goes to Tamar, but he's really not that interested. He's just kind of fulfilling his obligation, and uh, he decides he does not want to be with her intimately long enough for her to conceive. And you can fill in the blanks. That's all I can say. It's a PG sermon. So guess what happens to him? Verse 10, God kills him. I don't know. How? I mean, does that mean they got sick or that did they just die? Um, I mean, I've heard of stories where some... I have heard, frankly, of stories where people were at a point in their life where they died and really the only explanation is God killed them. So the third, so now Tamar is a widow twice and Judah tells her, I'm going to give you now, wait until our third son grows up and uh, the, the third son is Sheila, verse uh, 11. When he grows up, you can have him. But in the back of Judah's mind, he's thinking, there's no way I'm giving Sheila to this gal because she's like the black widow. All of my kids are going to die from this one woman. And so life goes on and Sheila grows up and he does not give him to Tamar. Tamar is back with her parents. She's wearing the widow's garb. Then she hears that Judah's going to go out with his other friends and they're going to go do a sheep shearing. And so she dresses up like a prostitute, stands by the road. Judah comes in. Now, again, in my mind, I'm thinking, Herbert Arnoy, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. No, you don't do that. So this is not a story about if you, if you, you can't find someone for your daughter-in-law, then you go with your daughter-in-law. No. So Judah goes up to sheep shear. Here's Tamar dressed like a prostitute. They make a deal. She's, he says, I'll give you a, a, a sheep. If, um, you know, we can be together. And she says, well, what are you going to, you know, when are you going to give me that sheep? He says, when I get home, I'll send it to you. And she says, well, what will you give me in the meantime? And he says, I'll give you my ring and my cord. And so she's like, okay. So they get together. He goes and shears sheep. She goes home. He goes back. Later on, Judah hears a rumor that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. He says, she's dead. She's my daughter-in-law. She's not supposed to be pregnant. And uh, so they call her, and they're going to kill her. And then she says, I am pregnant by whoever owns this ring and has this cord. And Judah goes, 
She's more righteous than me. I wronged her. Uh, she, she was in the right. And so Tamar lives and she gives birth to two boys. One of them is named Zerah. One of them is named Perez. And if you wonder why that story is even in the Bible, look in Luke 3.34 and you'll see in the genealogy of Jesus is Judah and Perez. Why in the world would that story even be there? Because that story is about God getting his people to the finish line and getting to Jesus and getting to the cross. So embedded in the story of Joseph, which is about God uh, preserving his people, is this odd story about Judah and Tamar. I'm not telling you to go and do likewise. I'm just telling you that story is there, but that story is about God's sovereignty and about God getting to his plan. We left off in chapter 37 in verse 12. Um, and so let's kind of pick that up, and then we're going to just tonight, we're going to get through verse uh, chapter 37, and then we're going to get uh, to uh, chapter 39. Just those, that's where we're going to go uh, tonight. So chapter 37 left off in verse 12, and it moves pretty fast. Remember, we'd already, uh, we're trying to decide who is Joseph, uh, what's he like, what's, what's his context like. And you've already seen several times where it talks about his brothers hated him. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, verse 11. They hate him because he's the favorite. They hate him because he has these two dreams that they're going to bow down to him. And uh, they hate him because he's a tattletale just like that girl in first grade that said I wasn't taking a nap. So, uh, thanks, Suze. So, so verse 12, uh, he finds out where they are. Okay, and then I think we left, uh, well, verse 12, his father, Jacob, says, go find out how your brothers are doing. And he says, okay, I'll go. Let me just paraphrase from verse 12 to verse 17. So he says, uh, Jacob says, Joseph, Go see how your brothers are doing. They're out there pasturing the sheep. Go check on them. Bring me word back. Joseph says, okay, I'll go. So Joseph goes out there. He goes to a place called Shechem. And if you read the text, it says he's just kind of wandering out in the field. And you almost feel sorry for him. He's looking around. Where are they? He sees a guy, and the guy says, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. And the the man says, uh, your brothers were here, but they've gone on further north to Dothan. And uh, you'll find them if you go there. So Joseph heads on north, and he goes to Dothan, and as he's coming, his brothers now, in verse 18, let's pick the story back up, his brothers plotted to kill him. So they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. And then, come, let us kill him, Throw him into one of the pits, and we'll say a wild beast devoured him. Then let's see what will become of his dreams. (laughs) Yeah, can't you see him? Let's do that. Now, they had these big cisterns. If you've ever been, anybody been to Jordan in this room? No? Golly. Jordan, okay, in Jordan there's a place called Tishbe up in Gilead, which is where Elijah the Tishbite is from, Elisha the Tishbite's from. And there's, in, at this site, there are a lot of these cisterns. And uh, just like this, 
Sometimes they had water in them. Sometimes they didn't. This one didn't. They had to lower him in. I mean, some of these things are like 20 feet deep. They're just in the rock. Some naturally, some hewn out. So they lower him. They get him. Well, pick it up again. Here comes this dreamer. Let's see what happens to his dreams. Verse 21, Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands. Now, Reuben's the oldest And so Reuben has an obligation to dad. And even though he doesn't like Joseph, he's not going to let him kill Joseph because Reuben is in a way responsible. He's the oldest son. He's not going to be the son that carries on the family name because Reuben's already messed up too by having relations with one of Jacob's other uh, uh, wives. So Reuben, though, is going to try to rescue him. And he says, look, verse 21 Let's not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, and do not lay hands on him. And he said that, he he says, so that he might come back later and rescue him and restore him to his father. So all that's happening while Joseph is walking up. You can just see Joseph, you know, he's just walking up. Hey, you know, what's going on? And they're planning, they're scheming, and they're deciding, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to just throw him in the pit. And Reuben's like, no, no. And you might wonder, you know, if Joseph sees all this going on as they're all talking around, he's just walking up, you know. How you guys doing? So it came about in verse 23, when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the varied colored tunic that was on him. They took him and threw him in a pit, and the pit was empty without any water in it. So his brothers plotted to kill him, He's thrown into a pit and he, he waits in the pit while his brothers are eating. Look in verse 25. They sat down to eat a meal. That's just horrible. In that culture, what a shame for, and, and how wrong your brothers have treated you. That's, that's worse than just taking off the, the jacket. To shun him and while... He's down in the pit. They're up there eating. I mean, we lived in the Middle East for 11 years. And uh, in Middle East culture, if somebody just shows up to your tent in the middle of the desert, three days you feed clo- or you feed them, you let them stay there, you don't even ask any questions. It's to shun somebody from food, that's horrible. But think about this. While he's sitting in there and while for one meal they're shunning him and they're eating, the tables are going to be turned here in just a few chapters. And Joseph is going to have all of, the, all of the food in Egypt and his brothers are going to be the ones that come to him saying, please give us something to eat. So, so he's, in, he's there, they're eating. They raise their eyes and they look in verse 25 and there's a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Gilead is just north of Amman, Jordan. If you go from Amman to Syria, you pass through Gilead. And you, you guys all sang an old song one day uh, as old-timers in a Southern Baptist church called There is a Balm in Gilead. You remember that song? And so one of these things that this caravan is bringing is they're bringing this balm that they get from Gilead. One of the things we used to do is there was actually a really cool paintball course in Gilead. So on the way back from that, my boys and I would be singing, there's a paintball course in Gilead. 
Yeah, so there it is. So they're bringing this stuff from Gilead. Look in verse uh, 25. Aromic gum, balm, myrrh on their way down to Egypt. And Judah. Now, where did Reuben go? Not sure. Judah now steps in and he says, Look, what profit is it if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. Now, one, one verse said they were Ishmaelites. Now that says they're Midianites. Which one's right? They're both right. It, it'd be like saying a bunch of Arabs came by and then the Jordanians said, so it's, the Ishmaelites are a bigger, all-encompassing, that's the kind of folks they were, and the Midianites are more specific. And so they pulled him up, verse 28, lifted Joseph out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, to, to finish chapter 37, now Reuben returns, and Reuben is like, what in the world is going on? And Joseph wasn't there. He tears his garments, and he says to the brothers, the boy's not here. As for me, what am I going to do? i got to go back to Dad. What am I going to tell him? What are we going to say? And so they all conspire. And they say, all right, here's what we're going to do. Now, get this. When they do this, the, the decision that they're making, they're going to live with for the next 20 years. I mean, we, we read over it really fast. But what they do is they conspire and they say, all right, here, here's the plan. We're going to take that jacket and we're going to kill a goat and we're going to dip that jacket in the goat and everybody, you guys got your, you know what you're going to say? If dad asks, do you know what you're going to say? What are we saying, all right? Do you know? Simeon, what are you going to say? Zebulun, what are you going to say? Gad, what are you saying? And all of them agree, all right, we're going to say that a wild beast got him, and this is all that's left, and Joseph is dead. And all of them agree that they're going to say that. So they do it, and... Um, Verse 32, they brought it to their father and they said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Now think about it. Isn't this interesting that years earlier, Jacob had pretty much done exactly the same thing. He and his mother conspired together to trick dad into thinking that he was Esau so that he could get the blessing. He'd already stolen Esau's birthright. Now, and he, and he well, you can say he tricked him. He said, remember that? Give me, give me the, the stew. What good is the stew if I'm dead? Now he's going to trick his dad, and he, he takes a, a goat, puts it on his arms, because Esau was a hairy guy. And his dad rubs it, remember that? And he says, okay, Esau, my son, you're going to get the blessing. Now, almost exactly the same thing. They've killed a sheep and they've said, all right, this is, this is what's left of your son. They've, they're going to deceive him. So Jacob tears his clothes, puts sackcloth on, and he mourns for his son. 
And all of his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I'll go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. As you read through the story too, you're going to see, this is kind of interesting. I don't know what to make of it other than just to bring it out. Um, Jacob gets pretty self-centered in this whole thing. Every time something happens, whether it's going to be the Benjamin going off to Egypt or this happening to Joseph, Jacob pretty much says, it's all about me. I feel bad. I'm in trouble now. Why have you done this to me? Later on, you'll see as the brothers are sitting around, I think we'll get there tomorrow, as the brothers are sitting around, they're just sitting around Cana looking at each other when the famine's going on. And Joseph, or Jacob looks around at him and he says, what are you guys staring at? Why don't you guys go do something for me? You know, I'm going to die. Do something. So you see a little bit of weird stuff out of Jacob's character and all that. Uh, But chapter 39 then. uh, Chapter 37, verse 36 ends with Joseph now going, being sold in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. In your notes, I threw in a little bit of stuff related to dates. If, if you're one of those kind of people that are interested in that, and like the date of the Exodus, the date of Joseph, um, here's, and, and what Pharaohs Joseph and Moses were under, there's just a couple of biblical references that kind of give you where we, where if you take the, the, the dates in the Bible literally, and I do, then this will give you a clue when all this happened. 1 Kings 6.11 talks about Um, It came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zev, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. And then in Exodus uh, 12.40, now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So Israel entered Egypt 910 years before Solomon, which would make it about 18 76 B.C., which in your notes you've got the the pharaohs that he would have lived under. The big controversy, I don't know if any of you even care, but if you're reading about this stuff some other place, there was a group that ruled Egypt called the Hyksos. And I don't even know if you've ever heard that that name, and if you have, then then you're going to walk away going, I'm sure glad you mentioned the Hyksos because I was wondering about that. And if you haven't, then don't worry. But some more non-conservative biblical scholars try to make Joseph and Moses in Egypt at the time of the Hyksos because the Hyksos were Canaanite, Palestinian-type people that came into the Nile Delta, and they ruled up in that area. And so they just sort of say, you know, it makes more sense that they were there when they were. But if we take these biblical dates as biblical dates, this is when we say it happened. All right. So chapter 39, here's the key to chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. That's, a, that's not just the key. That is a huge theme in Joseph's life. The Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, verse 23, like bookends on this story, that's, that's, what is, that's the term that's used to describe this guy. The Lord was with Joseph. Genesis 39, well, let me just read Genesis 39. 
Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, which that's another reason for you people that are interested in the Hyksos, why it's not the Hyksos, because the head of the bodyguard is a who? He's an Egyptian, full Egyptian, not, a, not anything other. Um, so he's taken there, he's with the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who'd taken him down there, and verse 2, and the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Uh, let's see. Let's go on down to verse 2 and 3. Uh, verse 3. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Here, here's first thought about this, about the Lord being with Joseph, that God's presence in Joseph's life was recognized in Joseph's life through observation. He didn't have to have a bumper sticker on his car. He didn't have to have a a cross tattoo. Not that anything's wrong with that. But through looking at his life, everybody was able to say, there's something different about that guy. It wasn't just a testimony to say, hey, you you can imagine as he's at Potiphar's house, I really shouldn't be here. I come from a group that's chosen by God. You must not know who I am. My father is Jacob. His father was Isaac. His father was Abraham. And we can trace our ancestry all the way back to Adam. And that's how wonderful I am. He didn't have anything like that. They looked at his life and they saw he was different. And I think that's what the world's crying out for. Not for, I mean, we we, we have a testimony and that's great. All of us do. But people that don't even know the Lord have a testimony of how whatever they found made a big difference in their life, whether it's their current diet or whether it's you know, some kind of, of uh, study that they're into or whatever it is, what they're looking for is somebody like Zacchaeus that says, hey, I met this guy, now I'm going to give half of my stuff to the poor and if I've robbed anybody, I'm paying them back four times. And Jesus says, there's a guy that's got it. Salvation's come to this guy. So, you'll, so Joseph, you know that the Lord is with him by looking at his life. And I think that's what the world's hungry for. Uh, they're, they're not hungry to see that you pull out of your, your driveway every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening to come to church. That's nice, and I'm glad my folks do. But they're hungry for you to make a difference in the workplace. One of the coolest calls I ever got is my first stint in Barstow. Uh, Merle and I had lived in, in Fort Worth in Dallas while I was in seminary, and I worked at this place in Texas called Texpac Express. Anybody a Texan, you might remember a time when UPS could not deliver in, and they couldn't pick up and deliver in Texas. That was like the Texas just had a rule. If you're going to deliver something in Texas, we want a Texan to pick it up and give it to a Texan, you know. And so I worked for Texpac, and we delivered and picked up in Texas. And I had a guy named Kenny. Most of us were seminary students, but there was a guy named Kenny that worked with me. And Kenny was married, and he had a couple kids, and that was his real job. I just worked in the morning, but Kenny was, that was it. And we spent time with Kenny, and we invited him to church, and we shared Christ with him. You know, we never really knew what happened to Kenny. And then one night... I was getting ready to to preach at our our church in Barstow. Somebody called the church phone on a Sunday night. Rarely would I even answer that. 
I answer it. He says, hey, you may not remember me. I'm Kenny from Texpac. And I said, good grief. Yeah, what are you doing, Kenny? He goes, look, I just want to tell you, my wife and I, you know, we're, we're, we love the Lord now. We're serving the Lord. We're in church. And I just had to tell you that the reason we're doing that is because when we worked at Texpac, you guys loved us and you, you cared for us. And we worked around a bunch of seminary students. But he said, you guys made a difference. That's what I think the, the, the world's looking for. They're looking for somebody who, where God's hand on them, that the Lord is with them, and it's observable, and it's recognizable. And in this context, it just seems like whatever he did made a difference. In fact, verse 5, other people are blessed through his presence. Just him being there raises the score. So Genesis 39, verse 4 and 5, he found favor in the sight and became his personal servant, made him overseer of all his house and all that he owned, he put in charge of. And it came about that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and with him, There he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Man, wouldn't you like to have an employee like that? All I want to care about is what are you going to get me when you go through the drive-thru? There it is. And then it, it ends that section, though, by saying, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That little statement then sets the scene for the next part of the narrative. The next part of the narrative you're probably familiar with, and that's the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And from that story, we can get another uh, really good piece of the theme in that story. I should be looking at my pictures because, um, hey, can you go back a couple? Is that all right? Go back to the one. Just keep going back. I got to go back, go back. Okay, I'm going to talk about two. Old missionaries have to show slides, just part of it. No sunset, though, at the end of the program. Uh, But um, I like this slide because this is, let, let let me just talk a little more about, I forgot this. It's okay. I'm still going to respect your time. Um, the Lord was with Joseph. This, this picture uh, is, the little boy on the left is now our 17-year-old. The man on the right is Abu Sam. He is our, he was our landlord in Jordan for six years. Now, from the time we got there when John was about a year old, and he was just toddling, from the time John could toddle, we lived downstairs. Uh, so Abu Sam and his family, which just means father of Sam, Abu Sam, they lived here, we lived down here, and another family lived up. And from the time that John could walk, he would, would sneak up and go to Abu Sam's house so that this 70-year-old Jordanian guy pretty much raised our son from one years to six years. And um, John would... He would escape, and we'd look for him. One day, he wasn't in the house at all. And Abu Sam and, and Tata, his wife, were not home. And we eventually found John. He had snuck through a window, was sitting in their 
their room uh, waiting for Tata to come home to give him tea and cookies and watch Arabic cartoons because that's what he did, and they waited on him. But the other thing that was interesting is he spent so much time with Abu Sam that as a six-year-old, I had a six-year-old son who walked and talked like a 70-year-old Jordanian man. Okay? So you'd see them, you'd see them outside walking on the street. And Abu Sam with his kafiyah on and John would dress up. This is a little Iraqi outfit. And, and you'd see them both just walking kind of like this, you know. And it's my six-year-old, you know, with his Jordanian grandpa. And they'd walk up and down the street. And then you'd, you'd uh, get John to tell you a story. You'll say, you know, what were you doing up there with Abu Sam? And he says, Abu Sam, he told me story. And he said that the fox, he took the meat from the man. And the man said to the fox, you can have the meat, but you can't cook it. And so we're like, can you just say that normally? Why don't you just say the man took it? So here, here's the thing. He, he, Abu Sam pretty much raised John until he was six. By the time John's six, I have a six-year-old who talks and walks like a 70-year-old Jordanian man. Here's what's going on, and here's what I think the world's looking for. People that have spent so much time with the Lord that you talk like Him, you walk like Him. People know where you've been and who's influenced your life. And what's sad is often, you know, we just try to survive. I mean, we're in a culture in, our, in, our, in America these days where we're just trying to get by without anybody making fun of us, anybody, you know, saying what a nut we are that we still believe this old book or that we still believe in the exclusive nature of the cross, that there's just one way. When I think scripture, what you learn from Joseph and what scripture can teach us is to be people that when people see us, they say, there's something different about that guy. He's been somewhere and he's been doing something I don't, I don't have any familiarity with. All right, so go two more pictures. I've got to show you one more. Next one. Um, so the Lord was with him. And I uh, just wanted to tell you, this is, this is a guy I want you to remember later because he's going to come back up again. This fella is uh, named Karzan uh, uh, Murad. This is actually, if you've been following the news where things are going on in Iraq, there was a place they were talking about a couple of weeks ago called Jebel Sinjar. And a bunch of people named Yazidis were there. And this is on top of Jebel Sinjar. And uh, Karzan is a guy who came to know the Lord with us. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about him more. I just wanted to show, show you his picture. That way you know when I get there. All right, chapter, chapter 39. Now we're in verse 7. Verse 7. Um, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Um, I've got some, some f- fun uh, pictures I'll show you in just a minute. Because this is such a famous story that master artists, you know, in the Middle Ages even, the 1600s, uh, have, uh, or, or yeah, early, what's that, early Renaissance, Reformation type, they've painted paintings of what this may have looked like. So I think it might be fun to look at that. Starting in verse 7, though, uh, Genesis 39, verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph 
And she said, lie with me. I told you, this story has everything, doesn't it? She says, lie with me. Um, Let me show you a few of these photos that are interesting. This is from Ludovico Segoli, 1610. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Remember that kind of art where you really couldn't tell who the men were and who the women were? And the the women all look like, you know, in Barstow we've got some, some Dutch farmers out there. The women all look like Dutch farm wives, you know, that are just in big, you know, dresses. So go to the next one. Uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Orazio Gentilci, 1626. Yeah, so they're kind of in, you know, it looks like the era, doesn't it? Like, I really don't think it looked like that. The next one, um, let's see, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Guido Rini, 1630. How about the next one? Uh, Joseph accused by Potiphar's wife, Rembrandt. So here she's going to, she's showing, hey, here's his, Here's his robe, you know, that he left. Uh, should be one or two more. Yeah, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, William Van uh, Miris, 1691. And then one more, 1964. Yeah, there it is. So, so this is a pretty well-known story. Um, what do you, and in the story, and as you look at Joseph's uh, life, and, and remember that the things that were written beforehand are written for our instruction and for our encouragement, what are you going to learn? There's a, there's a major theme in this, in this piece, and that has to do with the perspective on sin. So you look at this, and uh, here's what we're going to find out. All right? So she says in verse 7, Lie with me, verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and disappoint my master? Oh, wait, that's not what it says, is it? What's it say? How could I do this and sin against God? There you go major theme in how Joseph understands sin. Sin is against God. Now it's interesting, I think, first, if you look back in verse 9, there comes a point where a lot of people consider themselves invulnerable to the consequences of sin. It happens with people in power. You see it happen to people that are, that are even pastors, even megachurch pastors. And you get to a point where you think, you know, just like Joseph here, he has not withheld every, anything from me. I might as well take his wife. But he doesn't do that. He says, I can't do this because this is sin, and sin is sin against God. Sin is sin against God. God's the one that set the standards. God's the one that says this is right and this is wrong. And what's interesting and what's happening in our culture is those lines are real blurred because we don't have any absolutes anymore. And so how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Probably if you're a football fan, and probably most of you are not as rabid as the other people that are watching the games right now, but you've seen the last couple of weeks, 
uh, two big stories out, one on Ray Rice, the Baltimore Raven player that, first of all, showed the video dragging his fiance unconscious out of the elevator. Then they guess it turns out that you've seen the video now of, of him smacking her, and so he's suspended indefinitely. And then this last week, there's the story of Adrian Peterson and evidently took a switch to a kid. How do they know that that's wrong? How is Ray Rice to know that smacking his fiance is wrong? Who says that that's wrong? And then the other guys that didn't smack their fiancés, but the other guys that slept with different women at that hotel that night, how come that's not wrong? Or the babies that may have been aborted, how come that's not wrong? Or what if his spouse would have been a homosexual and he had hit a guy in the elevator? Would that have been wrong? All I'm saying is none of it's right, but we have a culture that has no absolutes. And when you have no absolutes, then who decides what's right and wrong? That's why Joseph and David is going to say this to Nathan later. Is that verse up there? How about the next one? Yeah, 2 Samuel 12. He's saying, the reason I know it's sin is God has set a standard, and when I break that standard, that's sin. It's not wrong just because the culture tells me I shouldn't hit a woman in an elevator. That's wrong, but it's wrong because God says it's wrong. And Joseph's got a clear perspective on sin. Sin is sin because God sets the standard. The second thing you see from the story is that he makes a decision to stay away from it. He says, how can I do this against God? And then look in verse 10. And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day. Can you imagine? Day after day, she's just sort of hounding him. Hey, what you doing? You busy? Potiphar went down to the market. Nobody around but us. Hey, Joe, what's going on? How, how do I look in this dress? Hey, you're not interested? What are you? Strange? You weird? What's wrong with you? I mean, you can imagine, day after day after day, she's hounding him because he didn't listen to her to lie with her or, guess what, be with her. He didn't even want to talk to her. He was not going to get near he stayed away from it. So his view of sin is sin is sin because it's sin against God. Sin uh, is, is, he understands the consequences of sin. And now he decides, I'm staying away. I'm not even going to be with her. I'm not even going to put myself in the same room while me and this woman are having a, a glass of Kirkaday. That's a hibiscus leaf that they drink around that part of the world. And you can drink it down in, what do they have? It? You can get it in Mexican restaurants. What is it? Hameka, you guys ever had that? So he stays away from it. He doesn't even want to be with her. And generally, my experience as a pastor with my folks is we want to get as close to sin as we can without getting hurt. But that's a dangerous road. Joseph stays away. There are, uh, I took some pictures. Merle and I were 
at the Grand Canyon. Oh, I've got, I've got uh, verse 10, right? That's coming up next. Hold on. Verse 10. Stay away from it. Yeah, generally we like to get as close as we can. Um, Proverbs 5, 8 says, keep away, keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Stay away. Merle and I went to the Grand Canyon this summer. And while we, we, we took, this was one of my most enjoyable time. It was like it wasn't a big vacation. I was teaching at Golden Gate in Denver, and so we took three days to come home. That was our vacation. But one after, we got to the Grand Canyon like around three, and we decided, you know what? We're going to have a peach, and we're going to sit on the ledge, and we're going to watch the sunset. Very romantic, yes, with my wife of 35 years, okay? So we sit there, and as we're sitting there, we look to the right, and we see in the Grand Canyon, there's an idiot on the ledge. Can you see this guy? Yeah, right here. And the next picture, he sits there. And I mean, I've got our, our better camera, not my little iPhone, but the one that we got from my rich preacher friend that they passed down to us. And so I've got that, and I'm like, okay, this is gonna this is gonna go viral if I can get the guy falling off, you know? I'm just expecting it. And then the next one, you know, he finally he makes it back. But that tends to be what we do. We get as close to it as we can. And we, we, we want to know, where is the line? How close can I get without it being sin? And Joseph runs. When I worked at Texpac, I told you that place in Texas that just picked up and delivered to Texans. Um, one of the stops that I had was a veterinary supply store. And it was almost like every time I had a delivery there, I'd pick the box up and I could shake it and it rattled. And part of the box was moist. I mean, and I just knew it. I mean, my truck would smell from whatever was in there. And my delivery route was in the morning. And at 1 o'clock I had to go to seminary class. And most of the time I went in my uniform. And when I had those deliveries there, even though I didn't get in the box, even though I didn't put that stuff on me, I smelled like whatever it was that was in that box because it just kind of was everywhere. Joseph's story says, run from it. Stay away from it. Sin is sin. Run, Forrest, run. Verse 12. Run. Get out of there. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And the story is going to end pretty soon. But he runs. He gets out of there. Here's a quick missionary story. Uh, We had a group of guys in eastern Sudan that had started a church and uh, these guys, it was, there were uh, 13 of a, of a group called the Bija. And we didn't have any believers when we went to Sudan. We had a group of 13 that were meeting in this little church. And uh, my partner and I had gone off for the day. We came back. We wanted to see what was happening with the church that Sunday night. And when we got there, we were told, don't go near the house where they were having church because Sudanese security busted those guys And um, they're looking for you guys. So we're like, oh, you know. So we kind of drove out there to see what was going on. 
And when we got near the house, we saw a couple of Sudanese security guys on motorcycles. And then we were in this shanty town, you know, a place made with cardboard and boxes and boards and everything out in eastern Sudan. And then it was like just rat patrol for about 10 minutes. We're just going over dunes and the motorcycle guys are coming behind us. And now I'm thinking about like, what were we thinking, you know? But they were coming after us. And all we could do to avoid them, just keep going. So that's what he says. Do that, run from sin. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. The story really speeds up in verse 13 as now Potiphar's wife, good lesson to learn from Potiphar's wife, when people who once admire you turn, they turn in proportion to the love they had for you previously. Anybody ever had that experience? Somebody's your best friend, and the next thing that happens is you do something they don't like, guess what? You're on the hit list. And this is what happens. So Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph. She saw that she'd left. She's got his robe. She calls all the men of the house. Look, he, Potiphar, he brought this Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came to lie with me and I screamed. It came about when he heard that I'd raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment and he fled and went outside. So she left the garment beside the bed like the one painting showed, till her master came home. And she spoke to him these words, the Hebrew slave that you brought, he came in to make sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and he fled outside. Now you wonder if Potiphar's that stupid to believe what she says, but he's going to lose face, whatever. And so he takes Joseph in verse 19. He hears those words that his wife said, his, he says, this is, she said, this is what your slave did to me. And his anger burned, and Joseph's master took him, put him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Now, he has to go to jail to lead up to what we're going to talk about tomorrow. If he's not in jail, he never meets the cupbearer, and he never meets the baker, and he never interprets dreams for Pharaoh. He's got to go to jail before he can get exalted. While he's in jail, and here's where you wonder, how do these things go together? Joseph in prison and prospering, from verse 19 to 23. The Lord was with him and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer didn't supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. How do those two things go together? Being in prison and prospering. In fact, that almost cuts against some contemporary pop Christianity. That if you were really doing the right thing, then you'd just be happy and everything would be going your way. But, you know, if you think about that, the Bible really doesn't say that, does it? In fact, if you think about many of Paul's letters were written from where? Prison. But he prospered. And Joseph's in prison, and he prospers. 
Acts 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And then Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Joseph can too, because the bookends of his life are, the Lord is with him. Whether he's exalted or whether he's in prison, his circumstances don't dictate his relationship to God. Whether he's in prison or whether he's going to be number two in Egypt. Do I have one more picture? Or not? Yeah, these guys. So Hamid Nisam were the two guys that I worked with most uh, in Sudan. Isam on the left was part of that group that got arrested that I told you we were running from the, the motorcycles and the, in our Land Rover. They took him to jail for 30 days, brought in some Muslim guys to try to con- reconvert him back to Islam, tortured him, made him look at the sun, made him hold buckets out like that, Uh, and one of the times that they were holding buckets out, they punched him in the stomach. He was holding buckets, and he started to drop them, so they punched him, and he made this sound. He went, us, like that. Well, in Arabic, the word asan means I'm better than. So so the guy punched him, and he went, asan, and the guy said, oh, you think you're better than me? I'll punch you again. So he punches him again, and Isam tells the story now, you know, laughing. That even in that context, even where he was, God's with him. He can do all things through Christ. He strengthens him. And how can you prosper even in prison? How can you prosper even in a bad circumstance? Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men. That way, Joseph's going to be the best steward that he can be. He's going to be the best prisoner that he can be. And tomorrow, he's going to be the best number two guy in Egypt that he can be. Let me lead us in prayer. I'll turn it back over to you, Bill. Father, we thank you for uh, this narrative of Joseph's life and what you can teach us. Father, help us to have a perspective on sin, on what we watch and what we see and what we do and where we go. Uh, that that leads us to just run from those things that aren't going to honor you. Lord, help us to also uh, be people that are characterized by just your hand upon us, that that our neighbors, our friends, that people in the workplace uh, might see a difference in us, see that we've been walking with you and talking with you, and that our speech and our way of life is noticeably different from people around us. Thank you for this group tonight. I just ask your blessing on them. Give us a a good rest, a good day tomorrow as we head back into the work week uh, that we just glorify you in what we do. In Jesus' name I pray.